Welcome to Musicians vs. the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. For the next few episodes, we will be concentrating on how we as musicians can take charge of our careers, no matter which career path we choose. We'll talk about how to sculpt your career into what you want, when to pivot, practical, useful tips about marketing and other business aspects, and what parts of your career you can do yourself and which things should be outsourced to other professionals. I am so excited to explore these topics with you, so let's just jump into it. In this first episode in our series, we are going to explore the idea of the portfolio career and how musicians can make choices to take control of their lives artistically and financially. My guest today is oboist Janet Ingle, who is an expert in the field of being your own CEO in order to become the happiest musician. Janet Ingle truly is the happiest musician. She has been principal oboist of the South Bend Symphony Orchestra since 2006 and freelances through the Midwest. As the owner and operator of Janet Ingle Reads, she makes and sells hundreds of handmade reads every month to oboists all over the world and helps people with their own read making through her video series, The Five Minute Read Maker, her weekly online read club, and her beginner online course, Zero to Read Maker. She is an experienced teacher and astute coach, devoting herself to helping musicians through her podcast, Crushing Classical, her group program, The Invincible Oboist, and her one-to-one career and mindset coaching as The Happiest Musician. Her latest book, The Happiest Musician, How to Thrive in Your Creative Career, is available in both paperback and Kindle versions on Amazon. So Jenna Ingle, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. I just respect you so much. You're such an accomplished, wonderful musician and you have dedicated yourself to paying it forward. And I just, I just admire you so much for helping other musicians along the way. And so you have this book, The Happiest Musician, you have the podcast, you have your blog, you have your training. What made you decide to go in that route of helping others? I feel like the moment that hit for me, like really everything in my life has been an evolution. My brain is always a little bit ahead and behind of where I actually am in the world. But I feel like the moment that hit for me was sometime in the in the middle of the pandemic um i had a donor to our orchestra reach out with a, this lovely email that said we understand that musicians are struggling during this terrible time right. and we would like to help do you need money basically like what a lovely lovely gesture yeah. and i wrote back and i said you know thank you so much like what a what a lovely thing this is but actually no we're fine and it was at that moment that i realized we really were fine not only were we fine financially because of all of the diversified arms of my portfolio career that were already happening before we shut down but we were okay because i was happy i was having like such a great time doing the work that I was doing and helping people. And all of the things that I was doing, sure, I had started them to make money because musicians need money. And at one time I was in my 20s needing money and then I was in my 30s needing money. Like all of the things that I was doing, I was doing originally because I saw an opportunity. But what I realized is that I was happy. I was really having a great time and feeling 
intensely, creatively and artistically fulfilled with the work that I was doing. And I didn't see that around me. I didn't see that for a lot of other musicians in the field. I didn't see that even in the group of amateur oboists that I was working with at that time. Like everyone seemed to be struggling or in some sort of scarcity place, whether it was scarcity around like their own oboe reed case or whether it was scarcity around the gigs they were being offered or whether it was scarcity around like we may never reopen. What am I going to do with my performance career? Yeah. And I wanted to help with that. Oh, so nice of you. So is that when you started writing your book? That is when I started writing the book. I just felt as though the way that things had come to balance out for me and the approach that I was taking, it felt as though it could help so many people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've read the book and it's fantastic. It is such a Thank wonderful... You. I wish I had it about 20 years ago, but <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's so helpful and it was very, very thought-provoking, even from just the first sentence, really. And I actually want to read some of the... You asked this question at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so interesting that in a book, a book about a career and how to shape your career to be a happy musician, you ask the question, if you weren't a musician, what would you do for a living? What are the top five careers you could see yourself in? And I think this is a great way for us to get to know you. Your five or stand-up comic, which wow. And then figure skater, con artist, charismatic preacher, and tennis star. That tells us a lot about you. I don't know what it tells us about you, but that tells us. Can it, why those five? I mean, shamelessly, I have to say that I love to be in the spotlight. It makes me really happy to be in front of people, and it makes me feel really happy to be good at things. Mm-hmm. And so my motivation... A million gajillion years ago, when I was 10 years old and I was starting to play the oboe, like, I loved the oboe because I was the only one in the band. Oh, yeah. And what I really wanted was to be, like, on stage, to be a a Broadway singer, dancer, actor. But I couldn't sing or dance or act. But I sure could play the oboe. Uh So I feel like all of those ridiculous careers, which I have no qualification for, the, the ones that I that you just read off for us. Um, I have no qualification for those jobs, but they all rhyme so much with being the principal oboist in an orchestra. It's not that they are, um, it's not that you're breaking new ground in any of those professions. Mm -hmm. It's that you're very, very good at something that is very niche and very specific. And the people in the know, know when you're good at it and when you're not good at it. Yeah. All of those careers or or fields involve communication, which is another thing that I just love, right? Whether it's the preacher who is like creating a new talk, a new version of an inspirational talk every single week, every single day, maybe. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the con man who is creating a connection between humans, even if it's fake and artificial and like built on lies, there's something so shiny and charismatic. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing all of the threads being put together now. About that. And, you know, it's not that I wrote tennis player. I wrote tennis star. Right. I, you know, I see myself as the Serena Williams, only 
I have no qualification. No qualification. <laughs> like my wrists are like dainty and childlike. I cannot play the tennis. But it's true. She's very charismatic as well. Yeah. And she's so multi-talented as well. I mean, she is just a star. Yes. Yeah. So as I think about alternate lives, alternate lives mm-hmm. in which, you know, from the tender age of five, I grew up playing tennis. I could easily imagine myself thriving in a tennis star kind of career. I could easily imagine myself um, in a revival tent setting, mm-hmm. like being the inspiration for everyone in the in the tent. And like we can all laugh because, in fact, I am trapped in the body of a classical oboist. <laughs> but I think that list of random. And like slightly silly sounding careers, which I listed intentionally to be a little random and a little ridiculous. Uh-huh. I, I think they all have a lot of resonance for what I do now. And I think there are a lot of ways of being an oboist that wouldn't rhyme with those careers. In other words, I could be sitting second oboe in the orchestra, where my job is to be seen and not heard. My job is to be supportive only. Mm-hmm. I could be playing in a in a Broadway pit where I play this exact same show every single night, and my job is never to be Christine Daae, but only to be the oboist below. And it's an important job, and it's right. relevant, and it's, and it's awesome. I personally, me, Janet Engel, I would get bored, and I would not like to continue to do that show over and over and over and over again and never get to sing the high seas. Mm-hmm. So my my overall point here is that whatever your blend of ideal careers is that you like might have thrived in in an alternate life, it might be worth seeing what is it about those that enchant you so much and how can you bring a little bit of that into what you're doing now? How can you tilt your oboe career so that you get the communication and the solo, the soloisticness, the, the virtuosity, the applause that you crave? Because you can. Like, there's a million ways to be an oboist in the world. There's a million ways to be a musician. Right. And you get to do it the way it feels right for you. Right. And what I love about that is that it's almost with you having these kind of silly and seemingly disjointed, but now that you explain it, I'm like, oh, okay, they fit perfectly together. Right. But you're giving musicians almost permission to think outside the box. And yes. I love that. Going along with that, there was another thing that you said that struck me and it almost made my stomach, the pit of my stomach fall out. For a while, you had a mindset that if you were not playing in the top five orchestras in the country, or if you didn't have a tenure track at one of the elite schools, not only were you not at the goal you were going for, but you were a failure. And that's a terrifying sort of mindset to be in. Because there's really not that many jobs in the big five orchestra. No. And in, if you want to be the principal of both. Right. <laughs> like, there's, there's five. Only five. <laughs> Think about all of those cute little middle school oboists and there's five that make it up to that. Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm not proud of that mindset. That's not the way I think or feel now. But it's a common one. for sure. It is a common one. For sure. In the 90s, coming out of an elite conservatory, like I was fully uh, swimming in the sea 
of this mindset because that's what we were taught. That's what our teachers did. Like our teachers were all tenured at elite conservatories. Right. That is the career path they had had and that they had seen, but it's not the one that was necessarily available to every one of their students. It was it was unquestionably not available to every one of their students just by the the very numbers. In my 20s and well into my 30s as I was taking auditions and consistently I would be well what is consistent? I would be in the finals, I would be the runner up, I would be cut from the semifinal, I would be cut from the preliminary. Every audition is a little bit different, but you know things were going well and going well and going well but never going well enough. Right. So for the longest time, I found myself in limbo. You know, we're living in Chicago. We're in this little apartment. It's furnished with like junk furniture because we knew that like the next audition would be the one that sent us across the country to a major right. job. So like you can't put down roots if that's the way you are feeling. Right. So it took me a long time and a long process of evolution to realize that the thing I was doing, teaching a million students and selling reads to people and giving solo recitals and taking auditions, sure, but playing as principal oboe with a couple of smaller orchestras, like it took me a while to realize that what I was doing was living my life in music and that what I had done by continually sort of leaning toward the things I was enjoying the most and leaning away from the things that I was enjoying the least mm -hmm. It took me a long time to realize that what that was was success. It was me playing Principal Lobo and doing the things that I loved to do, just not in like that incredibly elite level that I had been led to believe was the only way to really succeed. Yeah, that is so good. And that has kind of morphed into what you're calling as a portfolio career, right? Can you explain yes. that term a little bit? Mm-hmm. I feel like a portfolio career is one that is made up of not one single paycheck with benefits that comes from one employer, but a million different smaller paychecks from smaller organizations, from people, from different income streams. And I feel like the distinction between the, the portfolio career and like the gig economy, mm -hmm. the, oh God, I have to get some extra money. Let me just drive Lyft for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um is that all of those things that I'm doing are within my control. I started them and I can stop them and I can grow them and I can build them and I can balance and rebalance my pots on the stove mm -hmm. as I go along. But the the magic of the portfolio career is that instead of saying, I am the principal oboist of such and such organization, such and such an institution, mm -hmm. I don't have an affiliation like that. I am, the, in fact, the CEO of me. And driving for myself the balance of tasks and activities that I get to do during the day and setting my own pricing too. Yeah. I love that. The CEO yeah. of me. That is great. And <laughs> so, and I'm sure that you're balancing in different stages of life. It changes. Of course it does. I mean, when my child was small, I had different limitations than I have now. My child is 13 and there is more flexibility mm -hmm. in my, in my time, in my in my life, as I've leaned increasingly into some of the, the group programs that I do online, there's less urgency about accepting oboe gigs. So I'm very consciously balancing and rebalancing all the time. Still, even a year ago, my 
gut response to literally any email that came in asking me to play the oboe was, yes, of course, let me, I'll take it, let me put it on my calendar, if it fit even a little bit. And I've had to train myself to slow down and actually look at what is being offered and whether I actually want to do it. And it's such a privilege to be in that place where I can, where I can say, no, I don't want to come. I don't want to drive this far to play this repertoire with this conductor. Right. And feel very confident that it's, it's okay to say no. Yeah. You're not so much in a defensive sort of position. You are proactive and your every decision you make is kind of fitting into that portfolio and your life. So you're not, Yes, it's not ruling your life. You're kind of just living your life with your music supporting it. Yes. And being as conscious as possible about how I want to balance the finite amount of attention and intention and intensity that I have within myself. Yeah. You mentioned you can set your own pricing and you can set your own balance. And what I love about calling it a portfolio is it's so much like financial planning and stocks and bonds. And a financial planner will tell you, you have to have a diversified portfolio to weather the storms. And so many musicians were just up a creek without a paddle during the pandemic, like you said, because they're only, they only had one source of income. And you had mentioned in your book, you and your husband were too small to fail. And I love this. Would you mind sharing that a little bit? Yeah. You know, we had the best spring planned for 2020. We had such a great calendar stretching out ahead of us. I was going to be playing like a a touring Broadway production in Chicago. I was going to be playing on stage with Chicago Lyric Opera for the ring cycle. Oh, fun. Teeny weeny part, but still like on stage. And we had all of these great like Masterworks concerts lined up. My husband's also a freelance musician. Everything about that spring was looking so Great. And on this one Friday in March, I had just driven to Chicago to try on my costume for the ring cycle and driving back home again, two hour drive. And by the time I got home, the whole world had shut down. And so just like that, in a moment, in one afternoon of emailing, everything on our spring calendar was canceled and $18,000 of income, not like hopeful, like if I'm lucky, I'll make this, but like contracted jobs that were on our on our books that we were planning to like make the money and live on the money mm-hmm. just up in smoke totally gone and didn't come back for a year and like what a complete horror show yeah that was and we are like that is not just my story everyone has a story like that right but after the dust sort of settled it was shocking for us to realize that we were actually fine Because even though my primary identity was as a performer, Mm -hmm. that wasn't actually my primary source of income. Like we had a lucky spring lined up, but I still had my read business and I thought it might die completely, but it didn't because people who were locked down in their homes had time and wanted to play the oboe. Right. And I was working online with with oboists and working on, on teaching them and supporting them. And during the pandemic, people had time. So, you know, during that year, I think I ran my Invincible program three or four times and I created my Zero to Read Maker program and I created Read Club. Like all of the things I'm doing now, online supporting oboists, 
were invented during that time because I had the time and they had the time and I needed the money. And it turned out that 2020 was one of my best earning years. Isn't that amazing? Despite having no performances. Yeah, but it's because you had this skill set that you could see a need and you could Mm -hmm. develop that part of your portfolio, your portfolio career. Yes, exactly. This, that, and all of that stuff was already a little bit in progress. Right. In my head, it was sort of on the side of my real work, which was playing the oboe in orchestras. Right. And when that side of it, the playing the oboe in orchestras had to go away, it turned out there was plenty to expand and fill the space. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Now, are you finding that the 21st century musician, even if they do have kind of a steady performing job, could benefit from having a portfolio career? I think everyone can benefit from having a portfolio career. And here are some reasons why. Right. Um, You know, I have friends who are in big you know, quote unquote, real orchestras, the orchestras much bigger than my South Bend Symphony, the orchestras that are full time and pay your whole salary, unless there is a pandemic and they choose to furlough all of their employees or they choose to cut off their health insurance or they choose to just stop paying because the performances aren't happening. Mm. Uh, I have friends in orchestras whose management has, for whatever reason, locked everybody out and uh, during a labor dispute, not paid their musicians for months, right? These are things that have happened. Like we've we've, oh we've seen them in the news, right? Yeah. The uh, Baltimore went on strike. Fort Wayne just went on strike. The, That's right. Uh, Minnesota was on strike for, what, a year? I don't even remember if that is the correct detail. But oh, and then one just completely shut down somewhere. I can't remember. San Antonio That's just shut right. completely down. Yeah. And if your entire lifestyle is predicated on that paycheck showing up every other week and then it goes away, that is not a safe place to no. be. no. Whereas if you've got even something along the side of what you are doing, then you have something that you can like fan the flame on a little bit and bring it up to a boil and develop to make yourself safe. And here's another thing. If you are playing in a full-time orchestra or doing a full-time job of any of any stripe, of any situation, yes, that employer may be covering your financial needs, mm-hmm. maybe even entirely. But I bet that you are a more creative, complex, interesting person than the one narrow slice of you that the employer is paying you for. Right. And what I find with at least my portfolio career is it offers not only financial flexibility, but so much creative possibility because I get to follow the things that interest me. I got to write a book and sell it and get paid for it. I get to podcast every week and uh, meet people like you that I would not otherwise have get, have gotten to meet and be in these conversations, mm-hmm. which you and I, Christine, would never have met if, if my South Bend Symphony were a full-time orchestra and that was the only thing I was doing. That's true. I'm in Atlanta. We would never cross paths. Exactly. Yeah. So there's something uh, so creatively exciting about being the CEO of yourself and allowing yourself to pursue creative possibilities, to pursue artistic growth, to pursue financial benefit. <laughs> um 
like all of those things are within your power to control. And I don't know why you wouldn't want that. Even if you are working full time, you've got other hours. Right. I would think so. And especially, you know, if you are playing a lot of the same repertoire over and over again, maybe reaching and branching out into some sort of artistic diversity, mm-hmm. if you will, maybe even a different medium can just bring like a, like a nice fresh look into what you're already doing and can really increase your musicianship in your day job too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> when I was 17 years old and like on my way to music school, my mother tried all sorts of persuasive tactics to encourage me not to do that. Um, <laughs> and one of her primary arguments was, you'll be bored. You'll be so bored. I know, I know orchestral musicians and they get bored playing the same music over and over again. And of course, I'm 17 years old. I was like, no, I will never get bored with this. The oboe will never bore me. And I have already played three symphonies and I love them all. So this will <laughs> never be dull. And <laughs> The secret truth, of course, is that we were both right. Like, I do get bored of playing in the orchestra sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, the the experience of it is always magical. But rehearsals can get long and tedious, and I don't right. always love playing, like, Tchaikovsky again. Right. But in my actual, like, overarching career, I never get bored because there's always something new to do or learn or discover or improve. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And you get inspired by meeting so many different people. You can get inspired by them. You can learn new repertoire. I know that you've commissioned artists and all sorts of things, and you've created other businesses and you've closed them down when they haven't been working. I love the freedom that you have had and this whole idea of being a CEO of yourself because you have the freedom to try things out. And if they don't mm-hmm. work, that's okay because you have this income stream over here to kind of mm-hmm. mitigate that risk a little bit. I, I think that's such a smart way to go about shaping just your life. It just seems like a fun life to live. That is exactly what it is. I'm having such a good time in my life because there's always there's always something else that I could try or explore or think about. Yeah. So I know you do a lot of coaching and you help musicians you know, find their five careers, find their little common thread that makes them tick and then use that to explore these different options. But what are some really common mistakes that some musicians make as they're trying to figure out and develop their portfolio career? I think one thing that is really hard for people is it's easy to imagine what it's going to look like 10 years from now when you've got the thing established and you can see what the workflow might be and you can see how you might be helping people. And it can be very difficult to persuade yourself that starting small and messy and like helping one person and then putting out a shingle and letting people know and maybe helping two people. Like, I think it can be very hard to see the path from the germ of the idea mm-hmm. to the ultimate plan. And I think that the barrier from, okay, the magical thing is in my head, but I'm not there yet. Like the, the right. step from zero to one, the step of just getting started along the journey is a big one and a difficult one yeah, for people, which is why I'm an enormous advocate for whatever it is you've got in your mind. Like let's find the minimum viable first step (laughs) and do something. Because once you've taken the first step, the second step will appear, the third step will appear. Mm -hmm. And it could turn out that the steps you're taking are not a direct path to like that 10-year vision, Mm -hmm. that there's some zigzags along the way, but it, it will all work out fine. But you just have to 
start and try. Well, that's really scary. I think especially for classical musicians, we're used to our lessons oh, being yeah. guided by a teacher and we're used to like, here's your path once you get into conservatory or to music school, wherever. Everything's kind of laid out for you. You know, these are the etudes that you're supposed to do. This is the technique. There's the scales. But what you're asking people to do is go experiment. Mm -hmm. That's I could see that being absolutely terrifying. It is terrifying. And for classical musicians, too, we are trained to keep all the messy stuff behind closed doors. Right. Like we do not step out on stage until we have solved all of the notes and all of the rhythms. And we are like perfect is is an impractical goal, but it is always it's the, the goal, goal. Yeah. of classical musicians. And I would love to suggest that being human is more interesting and compelling in the world than being perfect mm. and that you can't possibly be perfect at something you haven't tried before but you could try it anyway like there's something just so lovely about daring yeah to take some steps forward and to have some conversations that might feel awkward and to put out some homemade oboe reads into the world to put out some some whatever it is your vision is bringing for you. I mean, I talk with people on my podcast all the time and literally no one who is in an amazing, fascinating career has said, oh yes, I had the idea. And then I like workshopped it quietly in my room in a notebook <laughs> for a year. And then it popped out fully formed and perfect. Oh my goodness. But that's what we want to do, isn't it? Of course it is. We want to just, <laughs> we want to plan that, prepare the whole thing and take care of every eventuality. Right. And we don't want to get started. Yeah. And then you get in this constant state of limbo of, oh, I should have done that. Right. Well, I think that's where a coach like yourself or a mentor is so mm -hmm. is so valuable. If someone were looking to, wants to talk to you, wants to find out more, how does somebody find you? Mm, my website is JanetIngle.com. And there's a work with me tab that has a whole bunch of different ways to like book a little call, book a little free call, book a little paid call. Um reach out to me. And your podcast is super helpful. You want to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Crushing Classical is a podcast that I did not originate. Tracy mm -hmm. Friedlander created it five, six years ago at this point, and I took it over last March. And on that podcast, I get to talk to people who are peripheral to and within classical music who are creating their own interesting, fascinating, excellent careers. Um, so every other week I have an incredibly inspiring person on my podcast, like you, Christine, and like Aww. others. Um, and between times, I often do smaller episodes in which I natter on about my thoughts about the industry. So as we wrap up here... Do you have any other advice for musicians, aspiring musicians, current musicians, or anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention? I think my big idea, no matter what, no matter where you are at in your career and no matter what you are envisioning, I would just like to assert that your artistry matters. That if there is a, a creative project or a business project that is lighting you up, if you're seeking but afraid to seek more visibility and more 
success with it. I would just love to see more musicians and creative people thriving in the world, not just because musicians are amazing people with incredible work ethics and incredible creativity, and we want them to thrive. I want you to thrive for you. I want you to thrive so that your students and the people in your immediate circle see you thriving and are inspired by you. And I want to see you thrive because the more musicians and creatives are visible in the world, having joy-filled lives, um, the more possible it becomes for the next generation to see that and to make it happen for themselves. Your artistry matters. Oh, that is beautiful. We will end it with that wonderful sentiment. Janet Engel, you are amazing. You're wonderful. Um, it has been such a joy to have you here. And I just appreciate you so much. Thank you for being here. Of course, Christine. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in my conversation with Janet Ingle. If you'd like to learn more about Janet or contact her for help in cultivating your own portfolio career, you can find her on her website, JanetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. She also has a wonderful podcast, Crushing Classical, available on all podcast platforms. I actually had the pleasure of being a guest on her program recently, so if you go over to that podcast, you can actually learn a little bit more about my own portfolio career and why it is that I do what I do. And she also has many individual episodes along with her interviews where she gives more helpful tips and advice like you've heard today. So go ahead and check that out. Janet's book, The Happiest Musician, How to Thrive in Your Creative Career, is available on Amazon. And I'll have links to that and everything we've talked about today on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. In today's episode, you've heard selections from Janet's album, Music That Should Have Been Written for the Oboe. You've heard Chopin's Minute Waltz in D-flat major, and Mendelssohn's Concerto in E minor for violin and orchestra movement one. All music was performed by Janet Ingle on the oboe and Paul Hamilton on the piano and was shared here with permission. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and was hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith. Now we appreciate the nice notes and messages we are getting from all of you and we read every single one of them. Thank you so much for reaching out. If you'd like to reach out to us with suggestions, questions, or just to say hi, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook, or you can email us at info at Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.